0: we are live hello hello and welcome everyone to another episode of strong tea i'm vicky and i'm katie and if you haven't joined us this month we are orchestrating all our episodes of strong tea and quick brew for pride month so we have got so many incredible guests all talking to us about things that we should be learning more about and definitely talking more about this month But if you haven't joined us before, Strong Tea is all about covering topics that some people consider taboo or controversial, but mainly we are doing it to help educate people, to help ourselves learn more, but also to get people to talk about the topics that we cover. So without further ado, what are we drinking today? I'll go to our incredible guest first, Marianne. What are you drinking
1: First of all, thank you for inviting me to do the podcast with you. And, and I feel slightly boring today. I was going to come with something exotic, but I've, I've ended up with uh, Yorkshire tea. Oh
2: it's a great, it's a classic, it's a classic. Don't mess oh, with
1: it, it. It is. It, it's decaf, though. I've uh, I've moved over to decaf. <laughs> My poor father will be turning in his grave. But yes.
2: <laughs> and how do you take it? Do you take it strong? Do you take it with milk or sugar?
1: I don't like it too strong, uh, but I do take milk, uh, no sugar. I mean, years and years ago, I used to have sugar and randomly I decided to give it up. And after about three weeks, I couldn't go back to sugar. So uh, yeah, milk and uh, uh, milk and tea, uh, no sugar. But I don't like it too strong, but I don't like it too milky either. So I'm a bit Mm. fussy that way.
2: And tell me, controversial topic on this show between Vicky and myself. Are you a biscuit dunker?
1: It uh, depends on the biscuit. Oh uh, no!
2: Ooh, okay, it's yeah, a safe it's answer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Vicky's
2: Vicky is a solid believer in the tea in the biscuit dunking region. I, um, unfortunately, I don't like bits floating in my tea, so I just I can't commit to it.
0: Uh, you've
1: got to go with a uh, oh, what's it called the McV- uh, the McVities one hobnob hobnob.
0: They don't mm-hmm.
1: they don't fall into the tea, do they? But. The good, yeah. You know, to be fair, if you have a rich tea, then you know you're going to end up with half your biscuit in the bottom.
2: <laughs> I like, that I love true. a biscuit, biscuit with a tea. Oh, don't, yeah. we don't need to put it in. You don't <laughs> we need do. Yeah, <laughs> we do. A custard cream, just oh, yeah.
1: Oh, don't set me off on custard cream. Yeah. Love a custard. An addiction. Cream. Oh, <laughs> oh,
0: God. Lovely. Mm. Katie, what are you drinking, my love?
2: Well, it's still in the realms of heatwave uh, territory. <laughs> still the inferno,
0: there.
2: <laughs> I'm, yeah, and I know, and I am sat here um, basically in pajamas um, that are vest and shorts because I can't I can't wear anything else because it's just too warm, and so I refuse to drink hot drinks um, because, as we know, I do not uh, prescribe to the belief that hot drinks are refreshing in this weather—that ridiculous notion. So I have gone for a Pepsi Max Cherry nice mm. like yeah that. I don't understand how something can taste so sweet and so good with no sugar in lies oh. I think lies. Chemicals, I think yeah probably <laughs> it's only bad stuff but that's fine I'm, I'm totally I'm totally okay with that Oh, <laughs> what are you drinking Vicky something you can dim- dip something in yeah I'm joining my uh
0: strong tea sister I'm joining joining my Yorkshire tea sister Marianne here mm. but I've gone gold Oh. I've gone gold, oh. Yorkshire tea, gold.
2: Because,
0: yeah, but it's an oldie, but a goodie. I love it. I just, I just don't. I just, it's comforting.
2: I don't think you can buy the decaf in the gold, can you? You can't. can't. No. 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 But but just I drink I, decaf, Arianna. Is it just decaf all the time now? It's only decaf if we're in the house.
1: When you go out, it's hard to get decaf. If I'm honest with you, and I'm not one of them people that just like to make a scene in a restaurant or a cafe. <laughs> <laughs> Can I have the decaf, please? You know, and running around trying to accommodate you. So, no. So I'm not. I'm not purist. I, I do just kind of want to say with the Yorkshire Tea Gold. You know, sometimes you can't. Um, you can't improve perfection. You know, and, and, and Yorkshire Tea, I've kind of perfected there. Oh, so no, I don't really know what the gold's like, but.
0: Yeah, I'm with you all the way. I'm so glad I found another another heartfelt fan. Brilliant. I must
2: I must tell you, I went into a cafe the other day in the town where I live and they had what was quoted as builder's tea on the menu. Um, and I thought, oh, I'll have that. Nice strong cup of tea. Came in a teapot, which for starters, no, don't do that because it's supposed to come in a big sturdy mug. Mm-hmm. And secondly, it was the weakest tea, oh. even though I let it stew in the teapot for a good Maybe 10, 15 minutes. The weakest tea I've ever had. I was like, this is ridiculous. Don't. Maybe, maybe builders just aren't as strong as
0: they used to be. Wow. Oh, uh, that's as maybe.
2: I, do you
1: know, as somebody who's been around builders uh, a lot of <laughs> time they, they take it always, builders, if I can use is <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: Huh? Isn't it very rare to find a, any sort of tradesman that doesn't have at least two sugars in their tea?
1: Well yeah i mean the they, they used some of them used to come so when i was an apprentice they used to come with their little pots all made up with the sugars in and you used oh to it, in. it was all loose leaf um but then i've worked with people you know that that would brew you, know, you, you the first brew would be 9 o'clock uh, 10 o'clock in the morning and they would have a pint mug of tea and then they'd put it on the stove the, the workshops used to have stoves yeah. They put it on the stove, and they would keep it until the neck till the dinner time brew. So they'd be drinking tea all day long. Oh my! So God. it started off quite weak or ordinary, but by the time it was loose leaves. So by the time it got to half past twelve, one o'clock, you could stand your teaspoon up in it. Oh
2: <laughs> my! That will wake you up, won't it? Yeah, yeah. It's probably what you need around about lunchtime, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> the second kickstart to the day. <laughs> right. Well, no without problem. further ado, we could talk about tea. Yeah. And biscuits and all sorts, uh, and builders all day, but we're not going to. Um, I, instead, I get the job of introducing our incredible guest today. And I don't want to tell you too much about her because I want her to do that herself. So um, Marianne Oaks is joining us today. She is an incredible woman who's here to share her story, and she's using her own experiences to help and support others as a lead counsellor with Gender GP and... Marianne, I can't thank you enough for joining us today to tell you, uh, tell us about your story and your journey that you've been on, because when we had our initial chat with you, both Vicky and I were just blown away, and so I can't wait to get started on this. So without further ado, would you tell us your story?
1: <laughs> Do you want the edited version, because you got the full version last time. Oh, no, not...
2: the full <laughs> version, absolutely.
1: <laughs> so, uh, the, the reality is I'm a 60-year-old transgender woman, and uh, soon to be 61, I have to say. Uh, So I've got a long life uh, to live, and it's been a windy road to get to where I am today. And I think I said to you when we last spoke, I've known uh, from a very early age I was different, I suppose, for want of a better uh, description. And with the lack of education as a child growing up in the 60s, you know, I have to remind people it was still illegal for two men to have sex, basically, in them days. And, and that you know, the idea of being trans was just off the radar. Everybody knew they existed. You know, we were, there was a presence somewhere in society, but it was either mocked, laughed at or ignored. You know, there was no representation. So as I grew up, the only uh, education I had, no social media, no computers, no internet, with sensationalist uh, reports in the news of the world of, you know, people that had been caught in compromising positions, you know, wearing, um, wearing a dress. And much as they were horrible stories, to me, they were a lifeline to say, oh, <laughs> I am not the only person that's felt like that. I don't identify with that person particularly, but, you know, to know that that, that, that there were others out there. Um, I met Vicky when I was 15. I'd already been, I, I, I call it presenting female only because cross-dressing comes with connotations to it. And it was never anything other than me, if I had time, just finding a way to uh, fulfil the need that I had that came from within. And by the time I met Vicky, they, that was quite an established routine, basically. I would, um, I, w- I, I you know... I was worried that when I met somebody, I was going to have to tell them and then that, you know, it would all blow up. And when I met Vicky, um, I did keep it a secret, I can't lie. Um, But I thought, actually, the desire to, you know, be me has kind of left. And we went on. uh, We were going out together for... uh, Five years before we got married, but in the fourth year we were planning on getting married. So I was fifteen when I met her, and I was nineteen when I told her. And it was through the uh, through the uh, organising of the, the organising of the wedding and the stress of it, I just thought I can't I can't live with it. Very mind, we'd almost lived together anyway, mm-hmm. but I, thought, I couldn't imagine living the rest of my life repressing this feeling that I hadn't actually gone away. And um, the opportunity came and and I told her and we actually cancelled the wedding, not because we didn't want to get married, but we were sick of the stress and there was enough going on. And thankfully, Vicky was as as ignorant as I was and I didn't I wasn't able to say I'm transgender. I just had to say, hey, look, I would do like to spend time presenting female. And uh, thankfully, she was supportive and, you know, we still wanted to get married We got married at 20, at 22 our firstborn came along and at 24 our second came along and then we just kind of got into this role of me going out to work and uh, Vicky, we we agreed that we were going to be, Vicky was going to be a stay-at-home mum, I don't know if that's controversial these days but we, uh, you know, we both agreed that. So I used to just work long hours. So I was too tired, really. And finding time was really difficult. But I would take opportunities here and there. And then as the kids got older, and there was more time. The percentage, this is where my percentage get, a scale comes in. I was spending more time as female. So maybe when we got married, 5% of my time was presenting female. By the time I was hitting my early 30s, it had probably gone up to... 10, 15%. So I went through my 30s into my 40s, it had increased to probably 50% of my time. Bear in mind at 38, I set my own business up thinking, oh, <laughs> if I if I'm my own boss, I can't be sacked if they find out I'm trans. And to put that in perspective, uh, you know, we're still in the early noughties, and it still wasn't as, I want to say accepted as it is today. That's would be using the term loosely, but it wasn't as Widely uh, visible. So I was spending about 50% of my time. We were going away for weekends and holidays and things like that. The lads had grown up, they'd left school. And then in 2007, my dad died. And that was a bit of a wake-up call. I'd never experienced grief like it. Um, I've never experienced somebody that close uh, passing away. Uh, And I had been close to my dad, despite... I want to say, despite being a trans woman, my relationship with my dad was really good. He didn't know. As far as I'm aware, he didn't know. If he did, he never said anything. And then uh, he died. And then in 2009, my best friend died. And that was a really big shock. And it's something that's really talked about, and I don't know if any of your listeners will be able to relate to this, but you only ever really and truly have one best friend and it was a really, this particular relationship was built. I, I, I met Graham when I was four years old, and I was uh, 47 when he uh, died. And I was I was really cut loose from talking about time. You know, my uh, nemesis on any sporting activity had gone. The person that I would ring up and go for a drink with, or do you know, if you wanted to go and have a day out somewhere or go snowboarding it was gone. And, and it was like, what do I do now? And if I was going to find a new best friend, did I want to tell them I was trans? Graham never knew, I have to say. So all that time, and then that 50% went up to 75% of, ta- of my time uh, as female. And then it just got to a stage where was, this is ridiculous. <laughs> um, but uh, coincidentally, I was outed then. Um, somebody with ill intent to kind of found me on Facebook or something and I'd run a bit of a smear campaign, bear in mind I still had my own business, I'd run a smear campaign to try and discredit me and I didn't know that this actually at the time, it was going on on behind me and sadly we had to shut the the factory down it, after, uh, if I dare mention Brexit, when Brexit happened a lot of the work we did was in Europe and it just became untenable and and so we had to close it and that's when I found out what had been going on kind of behind my back. And every man in my workshop, and they were talking uh, joiners, electricians, laborers, wagon drivers, everyone to a man um, didn't hold me ill. Well, they, you know, we were closing the factory down. We're having to let them go. They, they were almost crying because they didn't want to start working for us. And every one of them to a man respected my trans identity. And even to this day, I can still go and see some of them and mix with them, and and you know, no prejudice, no. Ill will. bear in mind, I know what it's like working on a shop floor. It was really heartwarming, and that that really gave me the momentum to carry on and and just thought, well, this is who I am anyway. Uh, to stop pretending, because when I look back on my life, there's always a percentage of my time I was pretending. I didn't always quite know how to. Integrate with men. Um, You know, there was a lot of kind of mimicking rather than being, if that makes sense. Just to kind of add a little twist in there. When um, when Graham died, uh, that's when I decided to go and retrain and be a counsellor. And I thought, I need you know, if I'm going to move forward with this. I need I I need some other skills. I'm not going to keep doing what I've been doing, which was I was I was a joiner by trade. Um I, I'm not going to keep doing that. I thought I want to retrain and I just randomly decided to pick counseling. I haven't got a clue what I was getting into. <laughs> uh and um so I went down, I did the uh they call it counseling concepts, a 10-week course. And I thought I liked it. That went on to certificate and then I went on to diploma and at uh, each level, I'd never passed an exam in my life. I mean, I left school with with nothing. If uh, if anybody wants any inspiration, just because you leave, leave school with nothing doesn't mean to say you can't mm-hmm. achieve later on. And so I I went and trained as a counsellor, and then as as my transition progressed, I, um, mm-hmm. I qualified in 2015. I advertised as a private practitioner. Thinking, I did what all trans people do, you know, transitioning, I don't, I'm not going to work with the trans community. There'll be no demand for my services anyway. We're only 1% of the population. I advertised on the 1st of January 2016 uh, that I was a private practitioner. And about the middle of January, I got a call from Gender GP. Did I want to do some work for them? And then, as the, you know, as they say, the rest is history. Uh, I kind of got sucked into it and my life's work became all about working with trans people. And then, as we know, the controversies around self-ID and trans women in sport and all of that took off. And and that meant my kind of just blew and I've never not had a full calendar ever since.
2: Wow. I, I don't know if
1: I've missed anything now. I'm sure there's more I could have said.
2: Oh, I think, well, there there are bits and pieces that we'll dive into because I know Vicky and I were scribbling furiously during our initial chat, but, I mean, it's incredible because you have been on such a journey, haven't you? I mean, everything everything that you've been through. Um, Can you tell us a bit more about what it was like when you, you know, when you were outed, you said you were very supported by your workforce and you know the people that you were, uh, you know, engaging with on a college level. But what was it like telling your family? Um, obviously, Vicky already knew, um, but your children and other family members, and also friends, because I know you said you didn't tell Graham. But what was it like?
1: So I, um, so we'd already told the lads. Actually, I suppose I missed that out somewhere. So me and Vicky had been that last. December, we were married 40 years. And, uh, you know, I do have to say, it's, you you know, um, it's an achievement. I think anybody who can be with one person for that long, Mm -hmm. I heard a great line in a a drama recently with Saran Jones, where her husband apparently they'd met when they were 15, you know, and they're arguing, they're having a difficult time. You know, and he said i know we were married at 15 he said you know some people spend a lifetime trying to find a soulmate but i struck gold at 15 i can't help it and i thought it was a lovely line i keep using it with Becky. <laughs> <laughs> does she
2: does she think you 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 made that up yourself
1: <laughs> no no she she watched it with oh, me but oh, oh. she didn't um i don't think she responded the way i did i thought i was a great line so uh, <laughs> I keep throwing it at her. You know, and I think that's true. You know, if you do meet the right person, I, th- I think, you know, you can be together. And, and you know, we've been together through thick and thin. It's not always been easy. We we're in, we're in a rocky stage, you know, at the time when we told the lads. And uh, the, I think Joe was probably uh, 18, 19, Tom was 20, going on 21, something like that. And Joe, who, who is autistic, he took it really well. You know, probably within a couple of weeks, he'd, he'd he'd seen me and was you know comfortable around me. And Tom, it t- probably took him another four or five years to fully be comfortable. But now they're both, you know, uh really uh, I don't know, accepting, comfortable. I mean, more recently they've both been working for Gender GP. Uh, they both they've both gone training as counsellors. So
2: wow, <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Yeah
1: um so yeah it it was difficult and it it didn't go well and then it did take some uh, coming out at work wasn't yeah I was out so it wasn't like I had to stand telling anyone the only bad side of it and you're saying about telling friends we didn't know who knew and who didn't know then and it made it difficult really to to then go to people to start talking about something and then them already know then me feeling a bit foolish mm-hmm. you know so it made it difficult i'm just gonna if i, if I may just give you one example of a friend that can't so after it had all happened my diary f- emptied in terms of you know social events nobody kind of it's a bit like when somebody's ill isn't it nobody kind of wants to go around and uh, so I I was just happy to get on on my own for a while. You know, it is a hell of a process. I can't. I mean, we could do a whole two-hour podcast just on the things that you experience um, as you uh, transition. But I was sat playing my guitar uh, one night, just in my office, and my phone was on the desk in front. I'm struggling, and it lit up, and it was a message on Facebook from an old friend, somebody who had known a while ago. And um, it was somebody I'd met through work actually. And it said, uh, you know, uh, Shelley wants to be a friend or whatever. And I was like, oh, what? <laughs> what do I do? What do I do? do I? <laughs> you know, and I was really worried. So obviously I accepted the friend re- request. And she sent a lovely little message through just saying, um, it's okay. Don't worry. You know, I just hope, I really just hope you and Vicky are okay. That's all, all I'm worried about. And then we had this little interaction back and forth. And in the end, I said, "You know, do you fancy going for a coffee?" And uh, and said, "Yeah." And we ranged and we went for a coffee. And I'll I'll never forget because I walked in. Usually, people are quite complimentary. I don't know if they do it because they don't want to upset you, or or you know, they just want to make you feel good, or it's their way of being cool with you. But I get lots of compliments. I went to see Shelly and she said, right, sit down, <laughs> right? I said, right, I've just got to say this and then it's out there. And she gave me the roasting of my life. She said, you abandoned me. I, You were one of my dearest friends. You've been really good to my family. She said, you were really important in my life and I never heard from you and I felt terrible and my heart's sinking here. She said, uh, and although I understand why, I need to tell you that. And um, after about five minutes, you know, she got all this stuff out and then we've been the best of friends <laughs> uh, ever, ever since. But it made me realise that, you know, we were all going through something. And and actually, if I'm honest with you, we needed to separate. I couldn't help my friends through it mm-hmm. and they couldn't really help me through it. You know, the the, the dynamics of the relationships had all changed. Mm-hmm. And I think Shelley just encapsulated it in that moment and, uh, you know, I felt terrible, but we've gone on, you know, we, we. she's just one of them girls that I can sit with and have nothing to talk about and never stop talking. Mm-hmm. And it's always nice and it's always funny and it's always uplifting. Um, so about once every month we just go for we, ladies who lunch. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, so in terms of telling people you know it, it's been varied but a lot of the people I didn't need to tell we I'm meeting somebody on the 1st of July who contacted us after years and we had the conversation do they know don't they and then it was Vicky they were contacting so Vicky just kind of said well I don't know if you've heard and said well we hadn't heard actually but you know we were okay we still want to go for a drink with you that's okay <laughs> So, yeah, still a new experience around every corner.
0: It's interesting. I'd never thought of it from a point of view before, of what you've just said in terms of obviously you're dealing with your own emotional well-being, everything else going through the transition that potentially you feel like you have to carry everyone else's as well because you've put them in, Not you've not put them in a position, but they are carrying and going on this journey with you. And so you feel you have to carry them through as well. i have never really thought about it in that way. That's oh, quite a burden.
1: It is. And you will get a lot of trans people. I mean, obviously, I learn a lot in the therapy room. Yeah. And you will get a lot of trans people who will, uh, how can I say, they'll work really hard to court um, approval. Mm. And I think, you know, in doing that, that, you know, if if we can get approval, then it'll be easier for other people. And, you know, the truth of the matter is it's not, it's not really for us to seek approval. You know, we've just got to carry on being the best person we can be, you know, and if we're going to be a good friend, we need to be able to be complete ourselves. You know, I think one of the, I, I speak a lot about the facade of maleness that are built, um, and, and I built a good facade, you know, be under no illusion, although it was, you know, I was mimicking people and uh on mimicking the behaviours of men. I think if anybody knew me historically, they'd always say I was different. Uh, I was the woke one on the workshop floor, you know, and everybody was being... Uh, Inappropriate and politically incorrect. I was the one that would keep people in check and and be the balance. And a lot of that was I just didn't identify with how they they viewed the world as 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 an unconscious minority, if that makes sense. So when I started to to knock it down, I think having all my friends around me would have made it really difficult for me to find actually what's left and what I did. Very quickly, I started building a facade of femaleness, and I can say now that that was completely, uh, or easily, as uncomfortable as the facade of maleness. And it, you know, I was kind of starting to mimic being a woman, uh, not not be the woman that 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 I am, if that makes sense. And then, how could I make more friends when I didn't know? How could I try and maintain friendships when I needed to know who it was? And do I really get on with these people? You know, the nice people, but are they the people that, that I want to be around now? Or do, will we have shared interests? So I, I needed an 18-month, two-year period, really, to just be free from the... I, I was free from the um, the expectations of my best friend. And I was free from the expectations of uh, my dad. And that was really liberating. Uh, I've Do I, I, you know, I'd give everything to just have half an hour with each of them again. So be under no illusion. I'm not saying that, oh, you know, I owe them ill will because of it. Mm. But, you know, I didn't have to then, I, you know, I was free to just find out what I wanted and be me. And that's been you know it's been challenging for the family as well and we have kind of found an equilibrium i feel i'm where i need to be now yeah. um is, i hope it... that makes sense
2: Absolutely. Uh, and it's interesting what you what you just said when before Vicky um, made her point there as well, we had um, Finn on talking about his transition journey. And he said in his advice, we give all our guests a final sip at the end, which is their advice for, for or or just anything that they want to leave the listeners with. And he said, if you're trying to support a trans person through their journey or to try and help them, don't ask them. About it, go off and find your own information, ask someone else because chances are they don't know. And I suppose my question is, you know, you, you are a counsellor, you work with trans folk all day, every day. And it's something that Vicky and I have talked about at length and with guests and on our own in that we're very privileged in the fact that we grew up and didn't feel like we were in the wrong body or it's, that something didn't quite fit. And that as a mental health journey must be huge. I mean, you just said about what, you know, two hour podcast on going through the whole transition and what that means mentally and physically. But I suppose my question is working with trans folk and supporting them, what, what are the biggest mental health challenges um for mental health folk. Not mental, so, folk, trans folk. Sorry. Get my words out. Trans people. But
1: trans. I, I don't really know. I I just use trans because it's easier and I'm lazy. The um so so it, it's fair the, the actual mental health issues are varied. So, it, so it's what does gender dysphoria manifest itself into? Would be the, the, the and, it, and it, it could be very. I've had people with you know eating disorders and uh, self harm, suicidal ideation, suicidal attempts, but ultimately depression and anxiety. Um, are, are, you know the the outcomes of trying to repress yourself. So I repress your true identity. So. Um, but th- the reality is that we, we've taken on all this information, whether we like it or not, and this is all, I would say all LGBTQ uh, plus people. You know, we live in a world that, that is inherently homophobic, not that everybody's homophobic, but it is a very cis, normative world. You know, and it's 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 transphobic. You know, there's no this is what the pains are, you know, with non for non-binary people Mm -hmm. and with society and accepting non-binary people. We've always had a men and women's department, we've always had a men and women's toilet. You know, women have babies, men don't have babies. The world is inherently transphobic. And and we grow up in that world. So we're picking up all the messages about how we're wrong and there's only one way of being and if we swim with the tide you can have a nice easy life if you try turning against the tide it's going to be really difficult we we are conditioned and socialized to behave and act in certain ways and when we start transitioning we really are booking the trend and and so what really happens then is that our view of the world becomes distorted you know, mm-hmm. that we believe that we are wrong. We we spend half our life apologizing. You know, if somebody gets upset because I'm a trans woman in the room, I feel I've caused that. I don't think that's their ignorance that's making them upset. That's their bias. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the mental health issues come with having a distorted view about ourselves and, and how do we find ourselves? How do we ground ourselves? Where do we get back to the beginning and then just start rebuilding our life uh, as we are without all that baggage. Have you heard, do you know what um, microaggressions are?
0: Yeah, but uh, for the sake of our listeners, could you uh, recap what microaggressions are?
1: So when I talk about microaggressions, I'm sure people have different takes on it, but it's the normalisation of language designed to devalue the experience of others. So when we live in this world that is normative, the language evolves. So I'm going to just give you a little example. I remember growing up, um, one of the sitcoms used to, you know, throw an insult at the, the male character by saying you're a big girl's blouse. Mm. Like it's a, neg- a negative connotation. Mm. There's loads of could say. I don't want to trigger the listeners um, by going through them all. But we're surrounded by that language all the time. You know, we, as a society, whether we like it or not, and, and you two will have experienced this more than I have, we do value uh, masculinity over femininity. So uh, the idea of aspiring to femininity is is considered, you know, not very good. That's why we use them um, connotations. So as we grow up, we're taking all that information and in. the brain never forgets. Mm. You know, and then when we start going against what we've been taught and how we've been conditioned, all them thought processes come back and start pulling at us, trying to pull the reins to stop us doing it, to put fear in us, to make us feel uneasy. And with that then, again, comes um, comes mental health issues. And, and, and when I say a distorted thought process, that's where people will go down the road of, it'd be better if I wasn't here. You know, that's why, and despite, I'll take breath in a minute, I promise. <laughs> despite, despite, you know, what people say about the, you know, who try to dismiss the suicide. The suicidal ideation rate within the trans community is exceptionally high. So that's people who, who are thinking I'd rather be dead than be trans, or I'd rather be dead than have to tell my parents or my children or whatever. You know, that's a distorted th- thought process. That that serves nobody, but it feels you know real to them that that that's what would be best. And and when we get these distor- distorted thought processes, then you know we start thinking stupid ideas. Hence, you do get a lot of trans people who do ridiculous things and then make the headlines and everybody goes, oh my God, you know, trans people are bad. Uh, it's just that they didn't get the help that they needed and they didn't live in an environment where um, where, where their needs were being met. So the suicidal rate is high and I don't care what the research shows and how they show it and, and whether people want to dispute the... Um, the research that's you know everybody's entitled to an opinion what i can say is a therapeutic counselor working in this area i worked for three years doing generic counseling to, as part of uh, to get you qualified you have to do volunteer work and for three years i worked for two charities i worked for mind and i worked for um beacon in stockport if anybody's listening highly recommend them for counseling they um and people would come into counseling there when they'd hit a low i had a breakdown and life was challenging them and some of them had considered suicide but they would come to counseling because god i hit a rock bottom i've got to do something i don't know what else i can do so i'll go to counseling with my client group by far the majority come to me because they want to kill themselves and i would say that at least 90% of the people I see have contemplated suicide. I would say there's probably 20% of the people that I see that are multiple suicide attempters. and, And I've even worked with somebody who was on a psychiatric ward that said to me, they're keeping me here to stop me committing suicide, but they all know when I leave, I'm going to do it. Wow, uh, You know, they were so lost. Very few counsellors will have ever been in that position. Very few counsellors will have experienced what we experience working with our uh, client group. So I'm not saying I ignore, you know, if, if you want to do research and you want to look at it from all different angles, sometimes in life we've just got to look at what's in front of us to understand the, the severity of it. And it's heartbreaking. I've never been there by the way I have to say you know um, I I went to my doctors twice about this and I always remember the first time I spoke to my doctor and he said well uh, you know you don't look like you you've got any mental health issues I said completely oh he said you don't look like you want to kill yourself (laughs) or words to that effect I said quite the opposite I said I want to live that's you know I want to make the most of the time that I've got I don't you know, but sadly, some people are just so lost that, um, you know, the only release from the pain that they're in. And and gender dysphoria is psychosomatic pain, which if you've got psychosomatic pain is real. You know, it's as real as toothache just because people can't see it and feel it. It's like saying electricity is not real till you touch a bare wire. Do you know what I mean? so they're in real pain and the only release from that pain that they can see is is suicide so it, you know it is a genuine concern within the trans community uh and removing care from them and, and removing hope is not going to help that uh, sadly
0: i'm building up to my question but you have made such incredibly fascinating points with what you've what you've said um let me think about I'm building it up and building it up because my brain is now going ask oh, that, ask that, ask that, ask um, that. But you mentioned about gender conditioning, yeah. and I find that you know a really, I'm quite passionate about the fact that gender is the social construct that we have made for ourselves. We have to find what femininity looks like. We have to find what masculinity looks like, and what those boundaries are. And I think, as you were saying about that, gender conditioning is a major contributor for the mental health of trans people in terms of that identification and as you said with your own journey you know not being your true self because you haven't explored so you go you know all that way and then so i can you know that that's really powerful trans representation in the past i mean there have been figures like um ziggy stardust for example um prints those kind of non-conforming kind of you know blurring the lines between masculinity and femininity and i've heard people argue well those were those could have been lgbt in particular trans kind of icons but i think my argument there is that but they were entertainers that wasn't a lifestyle that was entertainment that wasn't their life that wasn't their their journey, that wasn't who they were. So with that lack of representation, you said before that any good press when you were younger, even if it was negative, was positive because it was, wow, there's, there's, I get it. I get it. Do you think that trans representation, that trans role modeling is getting better, worse? And how is that contributing to trans mental health?
1: I So, uh, two sides to that. On one hand, you've got the trans community itself. There's some fantastic representation in there. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of uh, Jake and Hannah Graff. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Getting on with the lives having kids, regardless. You know, and it's great. I'm not saying they don't have the challenges. I'm sure they have. But, you know, the, the reality is just two lovely people, you know, getting on with the life. When you look on YouTube, most of the people I see who are under 30, they don't watch telly. They don't watch the news. They watch YouTube. And the representation on there is fantastic. People getting on with their lives, you know, fully rounded, coping well. And then you've got social media and then you've got the uh, the media in the UK, uh, you know, the press, and then you've got the politi- uh, the politicians. Mm. And it's horrible. And we can't help but ignore that. So no matter how much you watch YouTube, mum and dad are listening to the uh, prime minister, you know, laugh about trans women, like our our lives have got no value, that Mm. we are a joke somehow. And and the parents then are going to, project their fears onto their trans child if you're not careful. So you can't, the two bleed into each other. So, yeah, trans representation, if you want good representation, it's out there. You know, be under no illusion. There are some fantastic role models. Mm. And, you know, we shouldn't forget that. But then there's this counter, uh, this, you know, the social media, Twitter in particular, Um but but also, you know, I want to say the right-wing press, but I don't think the left-wing press is any better. better. You know, asking um, politicians, you know, what's a woman? Like, that's going to solve the cost of living crisis. Do you know what I mean? And to come back to your point there, um, Vicky, you know, this this stereotyping of femininity and what it means and what it should look like, uh, does nobody any favours. Um mm-hmm. You know, I was asked recently if I'd have had, you know, a better education about trans and gender diversity and trans people at the age of um, 12, what would have been different? And it would have probably been Mm non-binary. You know, that doesn't take away my binary presentation and uh, Mm -hmm. everything about me, Um, but there are aspects of me that aren't defined by my gender identity, and I think people hate that. I think... I want to say the gender critical people don't like that I will put on a tool belt and um, a tool belt and build my son's summer house for him because mm. I've got the key skills. Why would I not want to do that yeah. for my family? Um, me and my sons, we we've renovated houses in the past. You know, it doesn't doesn't negate me getting on in life. And and the, the why shouldn't a woman do that? But more uh, equally, why shouldn't a trans woman do that? Yeah, I don't know if I answered your question there. Yeah,
0: no, definitely, it's it's an area I find fascinating. I mean, infuriating at the same time that we have made ourselves uncomfortable by blurring the lines that we created. I just yes. I can't get my noggin around it sometimes.
1: There was, um, uh, if I dare mention the in Scotland, just after they passed the Gender Recognition Reform Act, uh, there was that prisoner who had yeah. committed rape, um, and the radio will come on every morning. I was listening to LBC, and Nick Ferrari, if I'm allowed to mention him, mm-hmm. couldn't stop saying rapist and trans woman together over and over again, every excuse to get rapist and trans woman in all the time. So eventually the listeners equate rapist with trans women. So is it any wonder people are frightened? You know... Um, And my my answer really to that is, well, if you want to know about trans women, try and get to know one. You know, um, when I give a talk, (laughs) uh, so I get asked to give talks to counsellors. When I give the talk, um, I I have a PowerPoint uh, presentation. The last slide literally says, ordinary people doing ordinary things. And I know that there are things about my life that are extraordinary by the the road that I've taken by ordinary people's standards. But as a person, just going about my day, it's just very ordinary. There's not a lot exciting happens to me. Uh, You know, we've got food to buy. We've got got bills to pay, mortgages to pay. You know, we, we, we just go about our lives. And that is true of all trans people. We're just ordinary people getting on with our lives. There's a social um, curiosity about you know, the fact that we've had the audacity to transition, but, you know, at its heart, there's very little remarkable about us um, in that respect. Um, we're just going about our day.
2: You're mute, Katie. <laughs> <laughs> I was making a really valid point there as well <laughs> did I look like it I looked like I was making a valid point um I was gonna say it's interesting that you have raised that um that point because a lot of people are afraid to mention you know bad things that happen with trans people because they think it elevates the uh the fear and the thing that really annoys me about that argument is the fact that there, you know, you don't look at a cishet man that's a rapist and another cishet man and go, he's gonna do the same thing. No. Now, I'm not you know, there are people that have been through traumatic events that may make that association and are not belittling that at all. But as a general societal construct, that is not a thing. So why is it? why is it like that for trans people and it's that's not my point but it makes me really angry <laughs> um, my my question was you you said something going back um three or four points ago where you said um that trans people have been made to feel I don't think these were your words, but in a a sense, ashamed of who they are. So when you're in a room with someone who feels uncomfortable that you're a trans woman, you almost feel apologetic. Now, you come across in your role as what you do. And we're talking to you as a very confident woman, you know, very much like I have spent my life becoming the woman that I am, knowing who I am and I, I am not ashamed so do you still feel like that because I can understand some people having that um sort of panic and that fear but do you still feel that
1: so there's there's two key uh are two ways of wrapping that that into uh into one answer really I think we all suffer with internalized shame and we we also suffer with internalized transphobia and and you know it doesn't matter how confident uh I am which. I think I am confident, you know, I am, uh, I'm able to talk to people, I'm able to engage. And and I also know that I, I, I educate by my very presence, generally, that sounds vain, doesn't it? I don't mean it that way. But, you know, people who meet me, it's an education, because I'm not all I'm not the rapist, <laughs> if that makes sense. I'm not who they imagined would be. Um, but there are times I'm about to walk into a room, and you know, I'm not quite sure how I'm going to be received. And whereas before I transitioned, I'd walk in without a second thought. I hesitate a little bit. Not that everybody would notice. Uh, I always remember I was out with my friends. Um there's a group of counsellors at Gender GP. We all live in the. Uh, we're all students together. Basically, uh, we all live around Manchester, and every now and then we go out and uh, we'll have a, a you know a Saturday afternoon out, go for a few drinks and a meal. And we'd had a meal and we went into this bar. I'll never forget, as we as as we walked in the door of the bar, there was a big plate glass window and the sun was shining through it. And as we walked in, my friends walked on and I got into the middle where this big, big beam of light was and suddenly froze. And I just felt everybody could see me all of a sudden. I didn't know it was going to happen. I wasn't, you know, I didn't kind of walk in there thinking that was going to happen. But that, that, Part was suddenly I felt like the spotlight was on me and everybody was looking at me and I hesitated. for It It was was probably only a fraction of, you know, perhaps two, three seconds. And then I walked up to the bat, and every one of my friends said, what was up with you then? I said, I just got scared. They said, why? I said, I don't know. I just stood in that light and I was overcome. So it can still happen. I don't think we ever truly rid ourselves of it. So, you know, we do tend, there was a, a saying years ago, I think these say you need to throw your hat in and if, if they throw it out again, you're not welcome. And I think there's an element, of uh, we throw our hat in everywhere just to make sure we'll be welcome. And when we're looking up services, you know, are they trans-friendly? There's still that element of um, being guarded, uh, so to speak. So, you know... Um, I don't think that that internalised shame or internalised transphobia ever truly uh, leaves. I can't explain that. We have, we won't have time to explain the nuances of all of that. But I think it's present in all of us if we would be, you know, we if we'd care to admit it. You know, I I know that it hits me when I least expect it. And one last point there, Vicky will tell you that sometimes she notices, like if we go somewhere. I say, can you just go and ask? I said why don't you go and ask? And I say, oh yeah, right. You know, she'll know when I'm having a moment, um, where I lack a moment to, you know, where I lack confidence. But um, and she'll say, you know, never had that before. So you know, it does, it does, it does affect us all. I and mean, you know, when I hear this idea that, you know, we we are going to go into the toilets for illicit. <laughs> reasons when the reality is we just want to pee and we probably feel more vulnerable than anybody else in there um you know but you know it's, the risk of not going in is far greater than the risk of going in so you, you're kind of forced to um so yeah
0: one of the things um that stands out for us with our guests a lot of them uh in fact my, all of them is their strength mm-hmm. is the journey that they've been through, whatever it is they come on this show we've asked them to come on this show because they are role models they are inspirational how do you feel about that tag because i know a couple of our guests in the previously have not liked being praised for being strong and brave because you know Mm -hmm. they just feel you know that they are who they are and they they just are how do you feel about that tag because obviously me and Katie are absolutely in awe of you and just think you know we can't even imagine what you've been through but how do you feel about being assigned to that label? I, I've,
1: I've never had it assigned to me not not openly but I think there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I tend to uh, fly under the radar a little bit so yeah I'm active on Twitter I don't know why it doesn't do my mental health that much good but I'm active on Twitter but you know I see the people who are actually out there on the front line actually fighting the fight against the uh you know the politicians and the lobbying and there's some fantastic people doing that there. Um I think if I was going to be assigned that label, it's it's through the people that I work with. And I do I do know that I've got a good reputation amongst families. Um in the UK. I do just kind of want to make the point, yeah, I am the lead therapist at uh, Gender GP, but I also run a private practice because not everybody wants to go through Gender GP, you know, for whatever reason. And so I expand my services beyond the the, uh, the boundaries of, of Gender GP. And I've I've had some great work. There's some people come to me, it's not going to work. You know, I think I have to be aware that my confidence can actually be quite intimidating to some people and it feels unattainable. And it's really hard to temper that, you know, when somebody is feeling really low and I'm kind of breezing in. uh, So so I can't help everybody. And I would say, you know, if anybody's going to find a counsellor, you know, right, you find the right one that... Suit your needs and I can't be that for everyone but the, for the people overwhelmingly the people that come to me seem to to get what they need from me and I would say that that yeah they will use me as a I don't know a, a measure of what they might want to appear and that is quite you know I, I sometimes feel I have to be a bit more perfect than I am um I had somebody leave me recently because on my contract, I hadn't added day them. I'd, I'd put, uh, it was a part of my contract. So every counsellor has a counselling contract and uh, I contracted with them and I hadn't put they, them in and they came to me for a few sessions and realised it wasn't working for them because that wouldn't leave the mind. So, you know, we can make mistakes. I'm not, you know, I am only human. Uh, so yeah, I fly under the radar. I don't think I'm going to win any awards for advancing the trans movement, but I'd like to think that in my own way, I'm 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 the mechanic that's that's helping tr- trans people in the background to be strong enough to benefit from the work that the others are doing on on the front line. You know, no plane flies without mechanics, does it? You know, yet the pilots get all the uh, the credit. <laughs> Don't know where that metaphor came from, but <laughs> I
2: it love works. that. <laughs> yeah. um, in terms of this, is something we asked all our LGBTQ guests um, because Vicky and I are so incredibly passionate about being allies to the community. And I guess the question is, what can not not only cisgender but anybody do? to support the trans community more. You know, there's so much, you know, you touched on it with what happened in Scotland. There's so much um vile approach online, um, so many trolls, so much nastiness. Crap, just yeah. general shit, um, you know, that comes out of people. You know, how can we, you know, I, I read a book called How to Be Anti-Racist. So we need to be anti-homophobic I guess don't we we need to be anti-anti yeah. anti, well I don't know but we need to be anti-whatever anti-ist <laughs> anti-ist <laughs>
1: but how we need, need know, to
2: be woke, <laughs> woke yeah <laughs> I hate the people that think woke is a bad thing so maybe <laughs> not um so in terms of you know your own personal position but also the work that you do as a counsellor how would you say that we can be better allies to the community?
1: I, it, the short answer for that is I don't think it's all about going out and, and waving flags and, and carrying banners. I think if we were to mobilise the allies, I think that we've got more allies than, than people would give us credit for, I have to say. But if we was to um, sign the petitions, do the things... So I I put stuff on my Facebook, you know, I'll, I'll put a petition on and I'll get... Six trans people will go and sign it. None of my cis friends go and sign it. That to them, it's only it's important. They don't see, they don't realize the importance of signing a petition that, that says we shouldn't be changing the Equality Act. You know, if people were bothered to sign it, that's as much activism as they need to do. If there is, you know, it's a bit. They say that, you know, if you were sat at a dinner table and somebody was being racist, if you don't call it out, you know better than the racist. And you don't have to know about trans people to call it out. You know, all you have to say is, well, you know, I don't agree with you, and if you're going to carry on, I'm going to, you know, and if they want to debate it, I'm not debating, because when you debate something, you're just adding credibility to the nonsense that they're talking. So it's really challenging um, but you know true allies won't if, if I'm allowed to swear won't take the shit you know that that's what you need you don't have to know you don't have but what you can say well all the trans people I've met have been great, you know, and if I'm the only trans person you've met, then super great well <laughs> now, but you know what i mean the the the, the you know peop it's very easy to demonize people you've never met. Mm. Uh, And I must admit, if I don't uh, raise this, you know, the trans kids at the moment, I mean, what the NHS and what the cast report, Mm -hmm. which I took part in the cast report, if I'd have known what their intent was, you know, I wouldn't have gone anywhere near it. But, you know, trans children at the moment, you know, they've got this thing going on about a teacher calling out somebody because somebody wanted to identify as a cat. It's, you know, um, political correctness gone mad or whatever you want to. Uh, say about it it just didn't happen like that it isn't this isn't about um, you know if a a kid is bullying another kid you call out the bully you don't make excuses and say well that bullying was okay because that child shouldn't have been uh, identifying as a cat you call out the bully and you have empathy for the victim that's it's a simple, So allies, that's all you need to do. Mm-hmm. Call out the bully, have empathy for the victim, whatever it is, whether it's racism. Uh, just one little story I'll, I'll just share with you. I've got a friend who is Muslim who I went th- to college with, and we were talking one night, and she lives in a, um, a very non-Muslim area of uh, Stockport. And uh, we're having this talk, and she said... Uh, um, she's never had a racist incident out on the street. But she followed it up by saying, there again, I never go anywhere where I'm likely to get a racist incident. And I've always got my kids with me. And, you know, uh, when you've got your kids with you, very rare will people say anything. So she's protected herself. And I said, it's the same with me. I've never had, I have to say, out on the street, away from social media, I've never had a transphobic attack, touch wood. And she said, we should both walk down uh, High Street together, shouldn't we? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, we should. And, um, and we kind of talked about it and we laughed about it, but we never did it. And I don't know what her reason was for not doing it. I know what my reason was, is that I couldn't handle racism. If I was out with somebody and somebody was being racist, I would really struggle to deal with that. And I think as a trans woman, I would feel even more vulnerable trying to deal with it. And I thought I I couldn't face it. I couldn't risk being with her and people being racist. And I think that would be more likely than people being transphobic to me. You know, if we want to be real about what's going on in the UK at the moment, I think ableism and racism are rife. Transphobia is massive in the media. But, you know, then still things on the street are far mm. more prevalent. There's a rat- in homophobia as well. But you've got to remember, a lot of trans women and trans men, you wouldn't know. Do you know yeah. what I mean? The people that are actually still facing the the trouble on the streets, to me, in many ways, and I'm sure some trans people would dispute me there. And I'm, you know, I don't want to negate that. But as a personal experience. You know, I still think we've got issues that what people will do on the street and what they will do on social media. Mm, yeah, and I think racism and ableism uh, are far more prevalent on the streets, certainly the streets that I go on, than perhaps transphobia. Um, so yeah, be an ally to everyone. You know, I'd you know, yeah. I'd hate to think I've got an ally that was a racist. Oh,
2: yeah. <laughs> I think it's it, – we talked about this the other day, and it was, you know, half the stuff that's written about trans people online, if someone was to say that in a racist connotation, they'd get leapt on. And, yes. you know, it would blow up because, oh, my God, you can't say that, you know. She who shall not be named, you know, says all these things all the time, and the turfs are out there. They're like, we love her, she's amazing – if she said something that was racist, imagine how that would blow up. And that that's the thing that really frustrates me because we're not tackling it because for a lot of people, it doesn't feel like enough of a problem. It doesn't feel like it's something that they need to tackle.
1: So, so it comes back to that um, microaggressions, doesn't it? The normalisation of language. You know, if you normalise the language, nobody would say, you know, that 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 cup of tea is gay and think anything of it. it is but you know the truth of my is homophobia it's a it's a homophobic statement you know so what what the transphobes are doing is is kind of using that to try and fight this you know um concerned about women and children's safety yeah i, I put something on twitter yesterday uh Somebody made a comment. I said, you've got to remember, you know, trans women are raped by men. Trans women are, are sexualized by men. Trans women are abused by men. Trans women are, you know, underpaid, undervalued in the workplace. And they went and come and said, no, they're not.
0: Oh, they don't. my God.
1: They, 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 that, that's a lie. They accused me of lying. And I just thought, well, "What? how do you argue with that? You, you don't. You've just got to. So from an ally's point of view, it's being armed with, you know, just being able to call it out without entering, you know, I I just block them when they say that, you know, and if, if I was in a, if I was invited as a dinner guest to somebody's house and somebody was going off like that about any issue Mm -hmm. uh, dehumanising other people, I would call it out. And if, if that was going to make everybody uncomfortable, then I'll call it out and then I'll leave. You know, I'm not going to take up the debate. It's wrong. End of. Yeah. You know, um, we the day we start dehumanizing people, we we lose our human humanity,
2: and I think I that's really,
0: really important. well said.
2: Yeah, I think I, I mean we could we could debate, we can chat about this <laughs> for hours. I know I certainly can. I know Vicky's like she's chomping at the bit. Look how angry she is. <laughs> um but we do have to end somewhere um and like i mentioned earlier we give all of our guests the final sip now it's a chance whether you want to give out advice um to other trans folk if you want to just give us a final statement final thoughts on you know whatever biscuit dunking choice um (laughs) you know the floor is yours because you know this is your podcast and we want you to get out the things that you feel are important
1: I, you know, if I was going to make a, a final statement today to anybody really who who is trans or questioning their gender identity, you know, no matter what it's like in the UK at the moment, and, and in America, it's it's bad over there. That it was always going to get worse before it gets better, and when you look at when you know that it where I the decade I was born in, I still pinch myself today, and I'm so thankful. I've been able to transition because working class boys didn't get to do what I'm doing. And I'm so thankful. So, that you know, my, my final message is just don't give up hope. Yeah, it feels really crap, feels really bad. Um, but, you know, surround yourself with good people if you can, you know, and, and just have a belief that it will be over soon, and the, you know you will be able to live your best life despite the the uh, transforms.
0: Marianne, we can't thank you enough yeah. for coming on and sharing yourself with us in mm-hmm. in that in a good way, in not in a kind of <laughs> just realised that sounded a bit pervy, didn't it? <laughs> thank you for sharing yourself. You're um, at your best
2: when you're pervy, Vicky. I,
0: I really am. It's, yeah, <laughs> I, I enjoy it immensely. Um, but thank you so much for coming on. We will, of course, put your all your details on there, your private practice and the GP details on there as well. Um, but thank you. And right. if you listeners have enjoyed listening, if you have enjoyed this particular episode, please check out our other ones this month and those coming up. If you have enjoyed more check out our back catalogue we've done loads oh, now so many so, so many. many um but thank you for listening and again please feel free to buy us a coffee head on over to our website and supporters page and you can buy us a coffee on there or a gin or a prosecco or a ginger ice beer, coffee or a iced yeah. coffee yeah frappuccino frapp. oh stop going on ice lollies ice lollies mm. biscuits We're, we are going to do the dunkability challenge we'll invite marianne back on and we'll do the dunking challenge
2: special you
1: need hobnobs knobs for that <laughs> <laughs> i giant... think it might
0: get controversial <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so thank you for joining us and once again it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from her <laughs> take care everyone bye, bye.